Good morning. It's good to be here, and it's good to see each and every one of you who've come. Uh, before we begin, I, I want to express my appreciation uh, for this opportunity, number one. Uh, I've really enjoyed getting to be here and spend time with you, and, and uh, my prayer is that this is going to be helpful for not only you men who are public teachers, but for anyone who is personally and privately teaching uh, anyone inside of a home or any other scenario. Uh, we've, we've been going through this, uh, looking at it in three different ways, and the way that I've... There we go. I had to turn that on. Uh, the way I've been trying to conceptualize this is first we're trying to internalize this information. And so uh, that really relates to our, our idea of studying the Word, of how to study the Word. And that was our first session. The second time we're talking about organization. Uh, and my wife loved this picture because it's a perfectly organized pantry. And, you know, organization is something I think is sometimes underappreciated. But especially when you're trying to guide someone through a study or you're trying to help them understand something better. Being able to organize what you've internalized is very helpful in externalizing what you have learned. And that's what we're going to talk about today is how is it that we effectively teach others verbally? And another way to look at this, if you don't like internalize, organize, and externalize is this. We're talking about studying, pondering, and speaking. Those are the simple things. And we see these different concepts in Scripture and study, studying and pondering is a little bit different. I think that they're related in some ways. And I do want to say this. You can't really effectively study without pondering. Because if you just take things for, for what you read, a lot of times you look at something, you go, oh, I know what that means. Well, I've done that before and walked away and then come back later and went, that's not what that means. Because I, I didn't take the time to really search it out and to ponder those things. And so I, we cannot stress the importance of study and of meditation or pondering, as it's said here. Um, there's a lot of different things that I think about when we're talking about teacher training, and one of those is, is different ways to give a presentation, whether that's body language or tone or all those things. And um, as I was trying to narrow down what I was going to try to focus on, because we're having three rather long sessions, uh, what I wanted to talk about today was some things that I wish someone would have told me when I was a young speaker. And the, these are things that, that I, I think are really relative more to being effective in communication and also in presentation, if you will, but not necessarily around the idea of public speaking or, or, or the way that we talk or things like that. We'll have some to say about that, but our main focus is going to be on some things relating to the heart of the matter. And we're going to look at some examples of sermons that we see in Scripture and we're also going to dive into various elements of what the Bible commands us when we think about teaching others. So that's a pretty wordy introduction, so I'm just going to jump right in here. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 15, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Meditate on these things, give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Uh, I forgot to mention, if you, if you do have a handout... We will be following that handout today. There may be one or two scriptures added in on the PowerPoint that aren't in the handout. But we will be following the handout today. I probably won't be able to keep up with what page we're on, so you'll have to do some of that yourself. Uh, but this is our first scripture that I want to think about this morning. And there's three different things I want to pull out of this. One is the idea of meditation. And we just talked about that, that the idea of pondering scripture, of meditating on something, really what we're talking about when we say meditate, because there's kind of a, 
a, a hippie type vibe to that. You know, when people talk about meditating, sitting, you know, in some Indi- uh, Indian style or whatever they call it, cross, I guess it's crisscross applesauce now. The other one's not politically correct, is it? Uh, but you sit down and you just basically hum and think, that's, that's not really what we're talking about. What we're talking about is putting a, a very diligent, focused effort on contemplating a thing. Okay? So we're thinking about something for a long period of time, and we're focusing all of our attention on that one thing. That's meditation. And Paul tells Timothy, I want you to meditate on these things, and we'll talk about what these things are in just a moment. And then he says, give yourself entirely to them. So you got those two things mixed together there. There's meditation, and then he says, I want you to give yourself entirely to them. Think of it this way. I want you to be devoted to these things. I want these things to be the most important thing in your mind. Now, what were these things? They were things relating to equipping the church. They were things related to his work as an evangelist. And you might say, well, I don't want to entirely devote myself to things that are related to the work of an evangelist. That's not really the point. What I want you to see is that when you do these two things, when you meditate on something, give yourself entirely to them, what happens is you progress. And that's what he says, that your progress may be evident to all. So I want to start with a couple of questions, uh, especially for our teachers here today. So since you began teaching, is there evidence of your progress? And I want you to really think about that. Have you grown in your teaching? That is in your study, in your meditation, in your organization, in your speaking. Have you grown? And secondly, that's your opinion Is that evident to everyone else? And I want you to notice that he not only expected uh, that there would be progress, but he said there should be progress. And that should be evident to everybody. And, And when you progress, that will become evident. And again, this is not about me standing up here and, you know, doing this, so look how much I've grown. That's not the point. The point is God has called us to become better at laboring in his kingdom. And, and I know that sometimes we think of that, well, that seems competitive, and we're going to talk about that as well later. But the idea of progress, is the, that's the whole intention behind why we're doing this. Because we can progress, we can grow in our ability, and no matter whether you have the gift of gab or you're a great orator, you can progress in your ability, even if you may not think of yourself as a person who's really talented at public speaking. Each one of us can grow and progress in that way. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. I want to sort of set a stage again for, for why uh, this is so important. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. He gave himself, uh, he himself rather gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers, or and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I want to stop and break some of this down really quick. What we've got is is God designed, he gave, it says, different offices for the equipping of the church. And some of those are non-existent today, the apostles, the prophets, those those are miraculous, we might say, offices. They they depended on the work of the Spirit um, in a miraculous way, and so those offices no longer exist today. However, those, the work that those people did is still in existence today. And so all the work that the apostles and the prophets did to equip the saints, is that still happening? Absolutely. We're still reading their words and being equipped by their words that God guided them to give us to equip us. So 
even though those offices don't exist, their work is still continuing to happen. Now, there's other things he mentions here, other offices, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And pastors is just another word for elder or bishop, or sometimes the word presbyter is used. Those are all synonymous uh, in that they describe the same office, and they all describe different areas of the work of that office. But he uses the word pastors here. Now, there's, there's some, I guess... Uh, not necessarily controversy, but debate over whether or not pastors and teachers is one phrase or, or there's pastors and teachers. I, I, I believe it's the latter. I don't think he's saying pastors who are teachers because every pastor is called to be a teacher. We see that example all throughout Scripture that elders are to teach and teach publicly. They've admonished you in the Word. They've spoken the Word of God to you. They're to feed the flock. That's part of their office. So I think what he's talking about is evangelists, pastors, and teachers. All three of them have a responsibility of equipping the saints. And as a teacher, I want you to really uh, take that to heart that it's not just your job to get up and, and display some level of knowledge that you've obtained, but it's your job to help equip the saints so they can be part of the work of the ministry. And I also want you to see in verse 13, he says, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. It's not just about knowledge. It's about uniting each other under the doctrine of Christ. Now, if that's a big part of our responsibility, that tells me that it's not just about me getting up and telling you things I know, but doing that in a spirit of unity. Of unity. And once we decide to veer off from that intention and we're no longer concerned about unity, our teaching is going to become more destructive than helpful. And, and we have to understand, and we're going to talk about some things biblically as far as teaching and as far as what we are going to talk about arguing. We're going to talk about arguing today because there is an effective way to argue, and, and we'll talk more about that later. But those things have to be done in the spirit of unity, not just the spirit of knowledge. And then he says, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, continue our reading to sort of expand on this idea of the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, it says that we should no longer be children. Now, we have, we've hammered this over and over. We're going to hammer it again. God expects us to grow. He doesn't expect people to, to become Christians and stay babies or, or stay immature in the Word. He expects all of us to have some level of growth. Now, that's going to be dependent on, number one, the talents God's given you. We see that, that some people are blessed with more abilities and talents than others, and, and God delegates those things, and that's up to God. Some of the equipping that we might gain is going to be dependent upon our intellect. Um, you know, there's, there's just, we're all different as far as our intelligence is concerned. But here's the thing. God expects us to educate ourselves from his word in relation to our intellect and our ability. And, and my point is this. Don't use that as an excuse to say, well, I can't grow because I'm not, I'm not Van or I'm not Hugh or I'm not Mark or, or I'm not D. Well, okay, that's true. You're not those people. But, does that mean that God has no expectation? Listen, that you be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the, tricky, the trickery, the tricky, the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. I'll tell you what's discouraging to me. To see a young person who grows up in a church pew, goes to Bible studies, they go off to college, they come back, and what happens? Sometimes they come back and their faith is strong. Their, their resolve is cemented. They're very strong in the faith. Some people come back and they're atheists. How does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. No progress, no growth, no rooting. 
And they're just carried away with like, like, like chaff in the wind with some crazy idea. Some, some ideologue comes along and they, they, they fill their mind with this ideology that's very toxic and poison and they don't have any way to combat that. So this is bigger than just you being a good speaker. We're to equip the saints, not just to go out and pass out flyers and teach the gospel. We're to teach the saints so they can be equipped to combat the false doctrine that exists in the world so that they know how to fight the battle of faith. And, and that's another thing he talks about here because men are tricky and they're cunning and they're deceitful. And then he says, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Now, verse 16, I love this verse. It's such a beautiful description of the functioning of the body when it's all working together. He says, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does it share. Do you see that? Every joint supplies, every part does it share, and it causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. You know, what I, you know what I think about when I read that verse? A machine. A machine where all these gears are, are perfectly aligned and the machine's running smoothly and it's lubricated and somebody's maintenancing that machine and it's, it's giving the right output that it's designed to put out. That's the description of the body that he's giving here when every single gear is in place and it's all working together. You know what happens when you remove a gear from a machine? No output. Now, is that really the reality of the church? No, you, not, removing one gear doesn't necessarily. But I'll tell you what does happen when a gear gets rusty. It doesn't matter if you lubricate all the rest of the gears. That one gear is rusty and it's starting to seize. It affects the whole machine. How important is it that you as an individual progress? People depend on you as a teacher. And I, I, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to use some type of shock factor here. I just want you to understand that every individual that is laboring in the kingdom is important. And sometimes the health of the congregation is not dependent upon just a few people, but the entirety of the church doing its uh, share of the functioning of the body. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says this, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So again, as he mentions different, he's about to mention different gifts, and we're not going to take time to read that, but one of those things he talks about is teaching, another is exhortation. And, and what he says here is this, he says those are gifts from God. That, that's something that God has given to us, he's dealt to us. And I want you to see this right here in the middle. Why does he say that? Is this just some random statement that Paul, this would be good to talk about here. Why does he say that? I'll tell you why. Because it's very uh, common for us to compare our gifts and talents with one another and be competitive. You know what he says? Don't think too highly of yourself. Maybe you've got talent. Maybe you're a natural speaker. Maybe you've got a lot of intellect. And maybe that surpasses other people. But you need to think what? Soberly. What's that mean? He says, if somebody thinks too highly of themselves, you know why they do that? Because they're not sober-minded. They don't think seriously. They don't see reality. What's the reality? If you possess all of those things, how'd you get them? God gave them to you. 
And, and that's his point here. God has dealt that to every man. He's dealt to everyone a measure of faith. And when he says a measure of faith, he's literally talking about the different spiritual gifts that were given in that time. But if you look at those spiritual gifts, they're all relative to something that is current. The only one that might, we might say is not is prophecy, but the rest of them, teaching, ministry, exhortation, um, comfort, all those things that are mentioned there, what are they? They're, they're different things that God has given us the ability to do. So take that seriously and don't think too highly of yourself. Okay, let's slow down. I feel like I'm going 90 miles an hour. All right, so we've hit this verse several times. We've talked about study and we talked about diligence. Those words are synonymous. And when we talk about being diligent, there's a purpose for that. Number one, he says, you want God's approval. That's number one. Number two, as you do your work, you don't want to be ashamed. You know, like what I described earlier about not being equipped to answer people, not being equipped with the right knowledge to have a biblical discussion. That, that can make a person very ashamed as they're going out and working if they don't know the truth. But the other one is rightly dividing the word of truth. And, and there's really two ways of looking at this. One is the internalization of God's word as we're rightly dividing it in our mind. But the other definition that is given in Strong's is the idea of expounding something correctly. And he actually says to dissect or to expound correctly. And so that's what we're going to focus on today is the idea of expounding. So I want to revisit that word expound because it's not a word we use a whole lot. But expound means to explain, to lay open the meaning. I really love that definition because it's somewhat uh, poetic. To lay open the meaning. Think about... You know, you open a box up or, or, and, and all of a sudden you see what's inside. That, that's the idea I get there, to lay open the meaning. Like you open up a book and somebody goes, oh, that's what it is. So really we're talking about understanding. So he says to clear of obscurity, to interpret, to expound a text of Scripture. And I asked you this last week. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But how many obscure lessons have you heard? where it's just all over the place, and you just go, okay, we're reading Scripture, I'm trying to stay focused, but I have no idea what that person is, their point is, I don't know what they're talking about. And I'll tell you, that, it's, it's such an endurance test that, that, that it, it, it's like, I've, heard, I've had people actually say, we ought to be spiritual enough to sit through a bad sermon. I don't know where we came up with that. God never tells us to be spiritual enough to endure a sermon. What he does tell us is this, let all things be done for edification. We, we have to be edifiers. We can't, we're not just educators, and, and honestly, those two things go together. If we're educating somebody, the purpose is so they learn, so they grow, so they're trained, so they're built up. And if all we're doing is getting up and, and filling a slot and, and what I mean by that is, well, it's my time to talk, and so i got to come up with some subject, and, I, you know, it's two weeks away, and I hadn't really been thinking about it. Guys, we got to do better. We've got to do better. And if we have that kind of attitude, I think we don't recognize the God that we serve. God's called us to holiness, to excellence. God has sanctified us, sanctified us for a purpose. And we have to take that seriously. We can't just get up here and give some obscure message and just hope that people are spiritual enough to endure it. That, that is just not at all. 
1 Corinthians chapter 14, notice, I think my God, I speak with tongues more than you all, yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I might teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue, or an unknown tongue, if you will. So I really want to think about this as we think about clearing obscurity and those type of things. It's not just about being organized, but, but I want you to think about the idea of a tongue. What is a tongue? Well, a tongue is a language that's not known by the audience. And so uh, let's say that I got up today and, and there was one person in here that didn't speak English. Is that me speaking in a tongue? Well, it is to them, to one person. But we're talking about someone who's standing up in the church and they're talking in a language that no one understands. Why? Because it was prophetic. It was something that happened through, through the, the gifts of the Spirit. And he says, listen, if, if people don't understand, you need to have somebody either explain what you're saying or don't talk. Now, what if we had that rule for speaking? You either need to be a clear communicator or don't talk. That's his point. Everything needs to be understood. Notice, I'd rather speak five words with my understanding where? In the church. What's he mean in the church? In the assembly of the church, five words with understanding are better than 10,000 that are not understood. I want to say again, be careful with the language that you use. We live in West Texas. We, we live in West Texas. We, we don't need all of this scholarly type uh, language that's associated with academia up here from the pulpit. Our purpose is not, we're not college professors standing up here giving some type of philosophy. This is about educating the saints. And our youngest Christians should be able to understand the majority of our message. I know there's some things that are too complex and they need time to grow, but they should be able to understand the majority of at least what we're saying. And so be clear and speak in a language that's understood. Secondly, if you're going to use visual aids, and I know that most of the time we use PowerPoint, and so that's where I'm really going to focus, make sure that your PowerPoint is not a distraction from your lesson. It complements your lesson. Because the point is not to give some flashy presentation that people go, ooh, ah, no, that's not the point. The point is it's supposed to supplement the effectiveness of your teaching and and I know this is somewhat nitpicky, but it's not just nitpicky, it's very important. Make sure your text is big on the screen, big enough for people to see. And y'all have a nice, lovely, big screen here. I love using your screen here because I can use 28, and people can see 28 even in the back. That's the smallest font I use at Plainview. I usually use 32 if I can. If you go a little bit smaller than that, the front row probably doesn't have a problem, but the back row, you're up here reading passages and they're going like this. They can't see it. So again, just, just be thoughtful about that. We're, we're trying to help people learn. Be considerate of everybody in the room. Don't jumble up your PowerPoint with, with a bunch of nonsense, you know, and I, I'm not against using pictures. Y'all know that. I'm going to have some pictures today. They can be distracting, though, if you're not careful, and, and you can actually get people to thinking about something that it has nothing to do with your lesson because of some image that you might put up on screen. So be thoughtful about those things is my point. Because uh, again, it's about understanding. 1 Corinthians 14 that we just alluded to, how is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each one of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation, let all things be done for edification. And so, again, when you come together and you're going to teach, your purpose 
is to build up. So we use that all the time, build up. What does that mean? We hear the word, right? What does build up mean? It means to strengthen, to strengthen something, to help it progress. Well, what's the opposite of build up? Tear down, weaken. You ever heard teaching that weakened the congregation? That, that it did absolutely nothing but hurt people. I have. I've sat in a room as we're having a Bible discussion and I've heard men say things that did nothing but hurt people. Hurt people. And I tell you, we're against woman abuse and I don't know why we think it's okay to abuse the bride of Christ. I don't, think, I don't, think, I don't believe that's okay. God's called us to be teachers to build one another up, not to tear each other down. And th this whole idea of, well, well... I, my voice is so important, my opinion is so important that I'm going to say it, and you're just going to have to deal with it, I'm going to tell you, you need to throw that idea, that perception in the garbage because that's not helpful for, for God's kingdom. We have to build one another up. And we're going to talk about some things that are necessary for building up today. What I, what I want to do is I want to look at scriptural examples of effective teaching. That's where we're going to begin today. And after we finish this section, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to... Uh, give the men a chance to ask some questions one at a time, and I'll give you some more details about that in a moment. Uh, but I want to think about script, scriptural examples that we see. And, and when I think about myself and I think about, well, you know, who do I want to be like as a teacher? And I, the obvious answer is Jesus, right? Well, Van and I were talking about this last night. There's certain aspects of Jesus' teaching that I'm just not capable of, of, of doing because, number one, I don't know the hearts of men. A lot of times when Jesus taught people, it was in relation to what he perceived in their hearts. You're, you could tread on some really dangerous ground there if, if you start gearing your teaching toward what you think people have in their heart. So that's when we say teaching like Jesus, we're not talking about that way. But Jesus was the master teacher, and we're going to look at, at Peter as well here in a moment. Uh, but Jesus possessed all wisdom and understanding. That's the other thing. We don't. But I want to take some things that we see from his teaching, and I want to consider the greatest sermon ever preached, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this is going to, again, I said don't jumble up the screen, but I, but I had to, because we're not going to necessarily go through all of this. It's actually on your handout, and I'm not exactly sure what page that's on. Uh, but if you'll just look and find the first bullet list with these arrows, you'll find that on your handout. As Jesus starts this Sermon on the Mount, he gives what we often refer to as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. And uh, the Beatitudes are supreme blessings. That's what the word means, Beatitudes. Uh, I think another good way of looking at that is this is the how to be attitude. And so you look at all these things that he mentions here. There's all these blessings that he talks about. And that's how he starts the Sermon on the Mount, by identifying these blessings. But then throughout his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, you know what he does? He expands every one of those ideas. That's masterful teaching. Because if, if he'd have just got up and said, blessed are the meek, people go, oh, meek. And you know, that's, that's all they get. But he didn't stop there. You know what he did? He then described the behavior of the meek. Those that are submissive, those that are humble, those that 
treat one another with respect and esteem others better than themselves. And we have the golden rule that's, that's taught in Luke that's a part of this sermon. And we've got all these aspects that are building and expanding on that first initial idea of blessed are the meek. And as you look through here, and I've just got multiple on mourn, and, and I don't want to dive into all that, but if, if, if you'll go through and study this, what you'll see is Jesus doing something masterful in his teaching, which is introducing a concept and then expanding that concept and helping them understand what he meant by his initial statement. That is critical in teaching, that we dive below just the shallow end. And I will say, don't plummet off into the Mariana Trench. Don't get too deep for people. You'll lose them. I want to remind you again, you may have already been in the Mariana Trench, but if everybody else hasn't, you may need to go 10 feet and that's it. And then maybe you go a little deeper later as you start building layers. But when you look at Jesus' teaching here, it is so effective, but it's not the Mariana Trench. Do you think that these things were earth-shattering for some people? I do. I think it was earth-shattering that they actually heard some of these teachings. But then you read them, they're simple. They're so simple. They were earth-shattering because people are carnal. You know what people need? They need a reminder that they're carnal. And that they got to fight that. And they got to know what's spiritual and what that looks like. What does it look like to be a spiritually-minded person? And that's exactly what this sermon was all about, is showing people the heart and the spirit of the law rather than just the physicality of the law. And Jesus introduces these concepts about the kingdom and, and about um, that, it's, that it's more than just what we do, but how we perceive one another and how we think about uh, God's commandments. So again, masterful teaching that Jesus does in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and also chapter 7. Okay, so I want to talk about uh, the first gospel sermon that we see, and I, I want to... We're going we're, again, we're going to do a lot of reading today, and so we're actually going to read through this sermon to begin, and then we're going to talk about the structure of this sermon. Because I'll tell you what Peter didn't do. Uh, he didn't sit down and write this sermon. And, you know, we were talking about The Chosen last night. I don't know if you've watched The Chosen, but, but, but I checked out of The Chosen whenever I, whenever I watched Matthew help Jesus write the Sermon on the Mount. That was it for me. I thought, that did not happen. <laughs> That did not happen. This, that Jesus had that sermon prepared before the foundation of the world. That was always coming. So they're, they're, they, weren't, they weren't doing it like we did, like sit down and study and write all the details down and then go preach it. But what I want to see here is that as God inspired Peter to give this sermon, we're seeing a very common theme in the way that we are as teachers. And, and it's not because... Peter was implementing us, but we're exemplifying him in a way that maybe we're not even aware of. Uh, so let's read through the sermon first, Acts 2 and 22. Je uh, Jesus is being talked about here by Peter, and he is the subject of this entire sermon. And remember, he's talking to a lot of people who are skeptics about Jesus. And so he says, You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God, among you by miracles, wonders, and signs, and I misspelled miracles, I apologize for that, uh, which God did by him in the midst of you, which ye also know, or which ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God you have taken by wicked hands, have crucified and slain. What's he start out with? This is who Jesus is. This is what you did. This is what God did. We're going to come back to that in a moment. 
Then he says, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So he introduces the idea that while Jesus died, he was also resurrected. And then he begins to assert proofs for that. He says, for David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I should not be shaken, or I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad, moreover my flesh also a rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. These people were familiar with this passage that he's reading. What they weren't familiar with is what it applied to. They all knew the passage, they just didn't know what it applied to. And he starts connecting this passage with Jesus. Now, let me, let me ask you a question. There's probably verses that you're very familiar with, just like these people were familiar with this verse. When somebody gets up and they read a verse and they say, you know, I always thought it meant this, and you go, oh, well, me too, and they said, but it actually means this. How do you feel? What are you thinking? You're like, oh, great, here comes the crazy train. They're, they're going to say something crazy. I've thought that before. I thought, well, great, they're going to try to explain away that passage, and they read it in its context, and I go, man, they're right. <laughs> I've been wrong about that for a long time. You know, there, there's this automatic defense mechanism, that this wall that comes up when we hear somebody explain a passage in a different way than maybe we... And, and that, that is happening over and over and over in this sermon. And so, but I want you to see he's not just going to make assertions that these passages apply to Jesus. He's going to prove it. He's going to prove it. You've made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. Why does he bring up David? Because he just quoted David. They always thought this was about David. And so he says, let me speak freely to you, brethren, about the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. How did he prove that this was about Christ? Now, do you think this was a revelation to them when he said, hey, I want all five, you know, however many thousand people there were there, 3,000 obeyed, maybe there was more. I want you all to know something. King David is dead. Yeah, that's pretty obvious. That's pretty obvious that David's dead. Well, his point is not that David's dead. He's just reminding them that David's dead. So this obviously wasn't about David because it was about someone not seeing corruption, someone not being left in the grave or Hades. And so he said this couldn't have been about David. And he said the reason why it's not about David is because he was prophesying about someone that would be his descendant that would actually be resurrected, which David is not. So again, he's proving the prophecy with that logic and reason. This Jesus, he said, God has raised up by of which we are all witnesses. Here's another proof. Not only did the prophecy say that Jesus would be alive, we've seen him. Therefore, being exalted by the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Okay, here's what I want to do. I don't want to sit here and just go through this over and over and over because we're very familiar with this. I want to look at Peter's sermon outline. Let's look at his outline. As he talks, how does he start? He starts by saying, you all know about Jesus of Nazareth, and they did. 
And he said, and you know he did miracles, wonders, and signs. And he did that in your midst. And they did. And he brought all that up to say, that proves that God approved him. God approved of Jesus. And you all know this because of what he did. And what's that mean? He is who he said he was. He's exactly who he said he was. And you can't, you can't ignore that evidence. That's the first thing he brings up. Then he says, Jesus was crucified, which they knew, but he then tells them this. That crucifixion was according to God's planning and foreknowledge. God planned this from the beginning. Then he says, Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. Now, I don't know if we just assume that everybody knew Jesus was alive, but if you actually look through the Gospels and then you look at what's said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what does he mention? He was seen by Peter. Who else was he seen by? Mary Magdalene. He was seen by two other women. He was seen by the two on the walk to Emmaus. He was seen by the, the twelve a few times. And then it says he was seen by about 500 brethren at once. So was Jesus out walking around saying, look, I'm alive, look, I'm alive. You know, he didn't even spend all 40 days with the apostles. You say, whoa, 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 it says he was with them 40 days proven. That's right, he was with them for 40 days, but he wasn't with them every day. In fact, he showed up on a Sunday and he appeared to them and then he, he, he disappeared out of their sight and then he showed up again another Sunday the next week. So why is he telling these people Jesus is resurrected? Because most people don't know that. They don't know that. And so now that he's asserted that, he's got to prove it. Or at least give some credible evidence to the fact that Jesus is alive from the dead. So here's his sermon outline. Number one, David prophesied it would happen. Number two, David's dead and buried, so he wasn't talking about himself. Number three, David was talking about a descendant, and Jesus is that descendant. And they knew the Messianic prophecies all pointed to the Messiah being a branch of David. That is a descendant of David. Okay, then his third point, Jesus would ascend to sit on the throne after his resurrection. Well, that'd be probably as hard to believe or more hard to believe than the resurrection, wouldn't it? But what's he say about that? He says, David hasn't ascended to the heavens. Well, who's he talking about? It's got to be talking about Christ because David hasn't done that. And then again, he, we witnessed his resurrection and his ascension. They saw both of those things. They watched him go up into heaven. And if you want more proof of that, we know that because of that and him being at the right hand of God that Jesus is king and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is proof. They come full circle to the original miracle that everybody witnessed which is them speaking in tongues and them saying listen all this was done as a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel and it was all done for this reason so we could prove to you all these assertions we're going to make about Jesus Christ and it all comes back to God proving it through this one miracle of us being allowed to speak in tongues that's all proof of this so David prophesied about Jesus being at the right hand of God this is a it's not a long sermon <laughs> How long did it take us to read 22 through 36? There's a lot of information in a very short time. And we covered that in what? 15, 20 minutes? And is it effective? Very effective. Obviously very effective. 3,000 people all believe the gospel, obey the gospel, and then are devoted to Jesus Christ instead of Moses for the rest of their life. Or at least from all indications. 
That's a very powerful sermon. And look at the structure in it. Look at the effective communication. And there's a lot of elements of this that would be very uncomfortable. Most of this is informational. Some of it's very convicting. You have, by, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. You know what that is? That's hard. That's hard to hear. You're guilty of the death of the Son of God. Some of this was persuasive. And so there's three elements of teaching that we see here. There's, there's rebuke or conviction, there's teaching, and then there's persuasion. And we're going to see those elements as we look at some other teachings today. So I want to go ahead and take a break and uh, open up the floor for questions uh, concerning this first section of our, of our teaching today. And I want to remind everybody again, I, I know I'm saying this every day, but I will be the bad guy. So... Let's all talk one at a time. If somebody's trying to shout across the room or, or talk out of turn, I, I will try to shut you down. I will try at least. Uh, I don't mind doing that. We, let's, let's try to be courteous. Let's try to be orderly. And let's also try to stay away from rabbit holes. And what I mean by that is let's stay on task and ask things that are pertaining to the material. Uh, and y'all may not have any questions, but I want to go ahead and give that as a prerequisite to our Q&A today. So uh, we'll open up the floor. Does anybody have any questions? All right, let's take a 10-minute break. Uh, if you need to go to the restroom or <clears throat> anything else, if you didn't get a handout, I want to encourage you to get a handout because it will be more detailed than, than the presentation today. But go ahead and take a break. Okay, in our second session today, uh, we're going to start out with this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. So Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and I want to give a little bit of background about the church at Corinth, because we're going to dive into this a little bit later in a different context. If you notice, the second letter that Paul wrote to Corinth is very, very different than the first one. And we're going to look at both of those letters some today. But the second letter, a lot of that letter, he spent time proving his apostleship. And that might seem weird, because... We, we probably don't doubt that Paul was an apostle, but people doubting his apostleship was a really big deal. Because you're, you're not only questioning him, you're questioning God, and you're questioning the authority that he has. And, you know, that's something that people commonly do, is they, they'll try to attack someone's authority to do something to attack what was said so that they're not bound to do whatever it is. So, we're gonna, again, we're going to dive into that a little bit more later. But this is that letter that he's writing, and he's explaining... Why he does what he does. And, and I want you to notice here, verses 10 and 11, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now look at verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. So one of the biggest ideas in religion today, especially among the Calvinist view, is that men don't persuade men anything. That how we present the Word of God is really irrelevant. That if somebody is really the called or the chosen, they will understand God's Word because God is directing them to either understand it or not understand it. Now, I want you to notice what he says here. We persuade men. And here's what that word persuade means. It means to convince someone by argument. To convince someone by argument, which is exactly what we just saw in Peter's sermon. 
He could have just stood up and said, Jesus is the Son of God, and all these people, because God had chose them, they just believe it. That's not what happened. He convinced them through what? Through rational, reasonable arguments. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about when he says we persuade men. We present the evidence of who God is, of who his son is, and that God is going to judge everyone, and that the only means of escape is through Jesus Christ. We persuade men of that. And so what I don't want us to do is think that, that we don't have an impact on whether or not people are persuaded. Now, again, it's God's word that has the power, and it's God that gives the increase. But what I want us to see is that Paul skillfully argued for the truth of the gospel, with ration and reason, and he used scripture to do it. So don't, don't minimize the importance of that. So what does effective arguing look like? And I want to start by saying effective arguing is dependent on more than just knowledge. Anybody that's got knowledge has probably been involved in an argument. And anybody who thinks they have knowledge is always involved, involved in arguments. And, and when we talk about arguments, I think we also need to qualify what we mean by argument. We're going to jump into that in a moment. But I also want to go through again and look at something that we see in 2 Timothy relating to Timothy's work as a teacher, as an instructor, if you will, and notice several qualifying factors of how Timothy was to teach. Because he wasn't just commanded to teach, to rebuke, exhort, all those things. There were other details that were relating to his work. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, 23-26. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. So... Notice this first part. What's he say? Avoid quarreling. Avoid quarreling. Then he actually repeats that. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel. So you may say, well, see, he says not to argue. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying don't fight with people. Don't get in a quarrel with people. It's, it's not about arguing. And I th again, I think we have to, to define what that means. But what we're going to see here is, number one, that it takes skill to effectively argue and reason with someone. So, what is argue? Because uh, obviously he's prohibited from quarreling. So, let's, let's talk about the word argue and what it actually does mean. It has various different meanings. Argue also means, rather than just the idea of having a debate or a quarrel with someone, argue also means to reason for or against something. It often means also to prove by reasoning or to persuade by reasons. What does that mean? We persuade men. It's the same thing. It's the same concept, the idea of arguing. That's why we're using the word arguing. And so arguing doesn't have to be this, this heated debate between two people where egos are getting involved and, and, and posture is getting to dominant posture and hands are being thrown up and intense looks are being given and voices are getting louder and you understand what I'm talking about. You know what an argument can be? A very quiet, calm discussion from the standpoint of ration and reason. And I believe that's what we're, we're called to. And and. You know, when we get up in the pulpit, it's, it's a lot more comfortable to be passionate. Obviously, I'm a high-energy guy. I, I, I believed in passion in the pulpit. But we're not just talking about teaching from the pulpit today. We're also talking about teaching in more of a private and personal setting. And in those instances, I tell you, I have to turn preacher mode off. Because if I don't, number one, I'm going to overwhelm somebody. And they're going to go, this guy needs to calm down. <laughs> he just needs to calm down. But secondly, I'm going I'm to close their ears. Because the moment that we get heated 
and, and we start getting loud people, they will connect that with this guy's upset or this woman is upset. If you lean forward towards somebody, you know what they're thinking? This guy is upset. Even posture matters. When you're, when you're studying with somebody, if I'm studying with someone who I know has an aggressive personality, I'll tell you what, I'm very conscientious of the entire time we're studying posture. If I'm on a couch, I try to lean back. If I'm in a chair, I try to lean back. If I'm talking, I try to keep my hands low. You know why? Because we don't often associate nonverbal communication with, with how the room's being read, but oftentimes those are the things that are really the tell. And so, you know, if you throw your hands out like this, automatically, that's a tell. Pe people know. If you put your hands towards somebody, that's a tell. I mean, be very aware of what you're doing with your body when you're trying to talk and communicate with somebody. And those things, it, it takes skill. Again, we talked about skill. We're going to talk about skill again. I want to define what it means able to teach because able to teach is translated apt to teach, which a lot of times we look at as, well, they're willing to teach. That is, they're apt to do it. Well, if you actually look at how this word's used in other places, I think it'll give us a better sense of what this word means. So this is the same Greek word that's translated in 1 Timothy 3 as well uh, as it relates to elders. And so he uses that same word. It's Greek word G1317 if you're doing Greek by number. And Thayer's defines it as apt or skillful in teaching. Now, I'm not always, I guess, open to the idea when I read a definition of just accepting their definition of that idea especially in Thayer's, because again, as we talked about Thayer's and Strong's, Strong's is more of a literal, strict definer of words, where Thayer maybe takes a little license at times and tries to explain how words were used, depending on uh, who was talking and what context is given. So I still use Thayer's, obviously, we're using Thayer's now, but just know there are some differences between the two. But my question is, is Thayer right is he right? Is that what the word means, skillful in teaching? Well, I want to look at another place, and I want to look at Titus chapter 1 and verse 9. And Titus doesn't use the same Greek word and doesn't say able to teach or apt to teach, but he says the same thing in a more concise and clear manner as he says this about the qualifications of an elder. Holding fast the faithful word as he had been taught. Now listen that he may be able to do what? By sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So this isn't just, yeah, they ought to be willing to teach. What is it? No, he must be able to do what? To take sound teaching, and when somebody is in opposition to the truth, when they contradict the truth, he has to be able to exhort and convict them with ration and reason, skillful in teaching. Same idea. Well, this, this is a higher calling than just willing to teach, isn't it? Because I'll tell you, a lot of times when people are contradicting the word, they know their arguments. They know their arguments. And they're wrong. They're wrong. But just because you can say, well, I don't believe that, you're wrong, that's not going to convince anybody. And that's why shepherds were called to a higher standard. I believe evangelists were called to a higher standard. So do you think that just teachers should be skilled in teaching? Well, they may not possess the same ability or skill that an evangelist or an elder would, but still, we are called to at least be as skillful as we can in teaching. Again, to progress, 
to whatever level of ability that we have. And if you think about the parable of the talents, the one-talent man, he was not required to do what the two-talent man could do, and he certainly wasn't required to do what the five-talent man could do, but he was required to do what he could do in relation to the ability that God gave him, and he buried it. He buried it. And we may look at that as, well, he's just shirking responsibility, okay? Well, I'll tell you, if we're lazy with our abilities, we're not doing anything better than just burying it. We've got to use those abilities for the glory of God. And so this, this is the idea of being skillful. And I want to revisit this passage. We've looked at this every time, but I, I think this is such an important passage for us to keep coming back to and keep again. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to really get this in your minds, that, that how important this is. Now for, by this, or by, I'm trying to quote King James. Let me look at the screen. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God and have come to need milk and not solid food. What is he talking about? He's saying, I expected that by this time you would have made some progress in your knowledge. And by this time you should have made enough progress, you could at least teach these simple concepts. But he said, you haven't. And now we're having to reteach the very foundational things of Christianity to you again. That's the milk of the word. Well, why didn't they progress? He said, well, everybody that partakes only of milk is unskilled. So there's that word again, skill, unskilled. They're unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised, to discern both good and evil. Now, why are we revisiting this passage? Because if we're going to be skillful in the way that we communicate with other people, that means we need some practice. We need some practice. So guys, if you really want, ladies too, if you really want to learn how to do these personal studies where you're sitting in a home and you're studying with somebody, ask somebody if you can go with them. Because there's already studies happening. And I'll tell you how I learned how to study the Bible with people. I was the Fred. And y'all probably have heard of the Fred and know what the Fred is. That term came from Fred Shores because Fred Shores just wanted to go on Bible studies, but he wouldn't say anything. But I'll tell you what he was doing when he'd go to those studies is he would sit there and he would be observant. And so the other person was teaching. He was watching the person they were talking to. Provided some very good information. But I'll tell you what else that does. It lets you be an observer and you are able to learn. Now, if, if you're like me, you'll be with Sean Zebach and you'll go on several studies and you'll be the Fred five times and then we pull up to somebody's house and he hands me the study guide and goes, all right, your turn. <laughs> that was pretty rough. <laughs> but it was a safe environment. It was a safe environment. It was somebody that already, you know, was far along and he wasn't gonna let me fail. But, but you've got to get to that point where you've got some familiarity with how to study the Bible. You watch someone else that's skillful. So, word of advice, I don't know how people are geared, but word of advice, if you're going to go study the Bible with someone and you want to know how to be a better instructor and you know that the person might not be the best communicator, maybe they're not as effective at doing Bible studies, maybe they blow up, maybe they're hot-tempered, don't go with that person. <laughs> go, go with somebody that you know has a calm spirit and is able to help you learn how to effectively study the Bible with someone. Find a mentor, that's my point. That's a good way to learn how to expound is by watching others who are effective do the very thing. And you will gain what? You'll gain skill, you'll gain maturity. And so th this is just about getting engaged, really. When you talk about becoming a more effective speaker, well, you're not going to know until you, until you start doing it. You know, I could sit here and tell you how to dribble a basketball, but I could hand it to a four-year-old and say, okay, here's how you dribble a basketball, and you give it to me. What do they do? 
You know why? Because they don't have any skill. They don't know what they're doing. They got to get some familiarity with it themselves. And the same is true about teaching. You got to become familiar with it. Okay, Acts chapter 18 and 25. What, what is skill and what is not skill? Let's talk about that for a little bit. And, and what's the most important thing when we talk about skillful teachers? Because I don't want to give everybody the idea that when we talk about skillful teachers that, that we mean eloquent orators uh, because even though we need to articulate everything and say everything clearly, I think sometimes that can give us the wrong idea about what is a skillful teacher. So Acts chapter 18, 25 through 27, we're we going to look at this uh, man named Apollos. And as we get details about Apollos, what we do learn is this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, I left verse 24 off of here, and that was actually unintentional. <clears throat> if you back up to verse 24, it talks about Apollos was born at Alexandria. Uh, he was a Jew who was born at Alexandria. He was an eloquent man. He was mighty in the Scriptures. So those details are very important about Apollos because we probably don't think much about Alexandria unless we've looked that up historically. But Alexandria was the center of education at the time. It would be like today if I said Harvard or Stanford or Yale. And I know that some of that's changing now too. But, but we associate those names with education. And that's why Luke takes time to bring up where Apollos is from. Because he's a very educated person, which means he's a person of high intellect. He's also a man who was mighty in the scriptures. So he, he could quote the Bible. He knew the Bible very well. And this man, it also says, had training. He was instructed in the way of the Lord. Well, who's the Lord? Jesus is the Lord. And so he's teaching Jesus. But what's he messed up about? Baptism. So would you look at what we just, uh, I guess, analyzed about Apollos and say he's a skillful teacher? Yes, in many ways, very skillful teacher. He possesses a lot of abilities that would make him a skillful teacher. He's a great orator, a very eloquent speaker, but here's the problem. He's wrong. As skillful as he is, he's just wrong as he could be. And, and, and here's, my, here's my point. You can work on all of the progressing in your ability, progressing in your presentation. If you don't have the right information, that's not skillful teaching. It's not effective teaching. You've got to have the right information, and this man doesn't. Well, well, then you have these two that come up and they talk to him. And it says, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Aquila and Priscilla, verse 26, heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Were they skillful teaching? Very skillful teachers. They were effective teachers. You know how we know they're effective teachers? Because Apollos changed his mind. He believed what they said. And he became a pillar in the church because two tent makers... Not people who went to seminary and college. Two tent makers came to him with skillful, effective, clear teaching, and he learned. So don't get too radicalized on, well, to be a skillful teacher, you, boy, you've you got you to read those books and do all this. It's really about learning the Bible and learning how to teach the Bible. That's skillful teaching. So, again, it may be different for people in the way they present those things. But, I, but there's some other things I want to take from this regarding Apollos. So I want to point this out. Firstly, I want us to understand that we as teachers need to have enough humility to be corrected. I wish somebody would have told me that when I was young. I did learn rather quickly. <laughs> but when you're young and you think you know everything and you get up and you, 
passionately give a lesson and somebody takes you aside and says, hey, I'd like to talk to you about your lesson. And they tell you about a passage and I'll tell you what happened with me. I got defensive. I got defensive. You imagine a guy of Apollos' stature and education being corrected by tent makers? You think that would fly today? You know it doesn't. You see these people do that all the time. Well, you didn't even go to college or something like that. You know, we, we have people that are, they, they just feel like because they have a higher education that they can't be wrong. But Apollos was a man of humility. He was willing to be corrected. And really, if we're seeking to please God, if that's our intention, we will all have enough humility to listen and be corrected. Number two, secondly, just because we make a mistake doesn't mean we should stop teaching. And I want you to really think about that because Apollos made a big mistake, big mistake. You know, why, you know how we know this is a big mistake? Because Paul comes in later and has to rebaptize 12 people. Now, that's just what Luke records. Maybe there was other people that were rebaptized there in Ephesus. But what we do know is this. What Apollos taught could have given people a false confidence that they were saved when they actually weren't. That's a big deal. But he didn't just go, well, I'm done. I'm never going to teach again. You're going to mess up, guys. It's going to happen. You're going to make mistakes. And, and what you need to do when you do make a mistake is, again, have the humility to be corrected and then, then have the humility to admit that you were wrong and to, to work toward teaching what's true and what's right. That's what Apollos did. He went and he taught the correct doctrine and he became, again, a pillar in the church. Thirdly, not one of us is so educated that we are incapable of being wrong. Again, he was highly intelligent, very experienced, and very competent as a communicator. But, but at the end of the day, he was just wrong. James chapter 3, verse 1 says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall all receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, also able also to bridle the whole body. So I want to qualify a statement I just made. I, I said, we're all going to be wrong. Don't be complacent about that. Don't go, well, everybody's wrong. No. Understand this. Teachers are going to be held to a higher standard of accountability. And I'll tell you, teaching's not for everybody. I think that has been a, a mistake sometimes that, that people make. They say every male should be a teacher. The, the Bible actually says, are all teachers? And that's a rhetorical question. And the answer has its obvious answer. No, they're not. Not everybody is a teacher. Now, we may teach in other ways, but when I, what I'm talking about is not everybody is going to get up here and publicly teach. And that, there's, it doesn't make them less of a Christian. It doesn't make them inferior to the people who are teachers. But not everybody's a teacher, and there's no shame in that. And that's why he gives us this warning. Be not many teachers. Well, why? Because sometimes we cause problems. And notice he says, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man. Again, all of us have made mistakes. None of us are perfect people. So I don't want you to, to become radicalized on one side or the other, being complacent about, well, people just say things that are wrong, so I don't need to put in the effort to make sure that what I'm saying is right. But I also don't want you to be on this discourage, uh, uh, on this other side that just says, well, I'm just not going to worry about it. Because you've you got to be concerned about this, about maintaining doctrinal purity, about teaching things that are correct and right, because we will be held to a higher standard. 2 Corinthians 10 
Okay, so I brought up 2 Corinthians, the letter. And one of the reasons I wanted to give a little background is because read what he's saying here from that standpoint as he is defending himself and his apostleship. And, and understand, it's not about Paul being defensive about his person. It's about his ministry and his work and the importance of people recognizing his authority. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 10, it says, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Have such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters, when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. For we do not presume to rank or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they have no understanding. Let's really, really break this down. Who is they? I don't know. <laughs> Somebody. Somebody was saying this about Paul. Now, that could have been a small group of people in the church. It could have been people there at Corinth. But, but let's talk about Corinth. Because I think to understand what's going on here, we need to understand Corinth itself. I, I'm sure that some of you have probably at least read in history or heard that in Athens, uh, it was the center of philosophy. And so you had these men who would go to these stages and there'd be an audience that would gather around. And these men would very articulately pontificate all these ideas. And I'm using pontificate for a reason because that's exactly what they do. They, you know, you've seen that. These people who, they're very impressed with their self, you know, themselves. Again, West Texas. But that's the point of it. They would get up and they would try to impress people. And it was, it was a competition, you know. Some would get up and speak, then someone would get up and rebut, and then the crowd would be out there going, oh, oh. That was Corinth. They were exactly the same as Athens. They exalted wisdom to such a level, human wisdom to such a level, they felt like they were superior to other people. And they're, they're looking at Paul, who is not this guy that's pontificating on a stage and, and puffing his chest out and putting his hand in the air and, and all this stuff. And they're going, you know, this guy's letters are weighty, but he's an unimpressive person. I'm just not impressed by Paul. His presence is unimpressive. His speech is common. You know, like, huh, common snobby you know who cares <laughs> did Paul care what those people thought of him he said you know the people that are saying that have them consider this whatever I'm writing in letter that's exactly who I am when I'm present I'm the same person in reality as I am when I write to you there's a consistency with my teaching that is my works. I want you to really think about this, guys, because this is so important that it's not about whether or not we're impressive. It's not about whether we're top tier or we're above other people in the way we communicate. What is it about? What is it about? It's about consistency. He had consistency of character. And then he says this in verse 12, and this is a very, very important part that I want us to think about too. We do not presume to rank or compare ourselves with some of those who would commend themselves. They get up on this stage and they would compete and they would judge one another based upon who had the greatest performance. And Paul says, we're not doing that. We're not about that. And I'm not going to defend my apostleship based on what others think of me in comparison to other people. Who's going who's gonna to do the commending? God is. God commended Paul. God approved of Paul. God approved of Paul's work because God 
uh, guided Paul's work. He, he wasn't worried about being impressive. What he was worried about, concerned about, I should say, is not only being effective, but being credible. And I'll tell you, when you get up and you pontificate and you puff your chest out and it's all about you displaying your intellect for everybody else to see, you lose your credibility. You lose your credibility. And you also have to be consistent in the way you behave. Paul says this, I keep I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. Disqualified from what? Being a preacher, being a teacher. You know, this is really interesting. If you go back and you read the context of all this, this is, the, this is that section where Paul talks about running the race and fighting the fight. And one of the things that he mentions is, I don't, I, I don't box as one that beats the air. And what he's saying is, I, I know the opponent I'm fighting, and I'm fighting against that opponent. I'm just swinging wildly into the air. And then you look at this word here, keep under my body. You know what it is? To punch in the face. To punch in the face. Paul said, I don't box as someone who beats the air. You know who I'm fighting? Myself. I discipline myself. I'm fighting against myself. My body. And I bring it into subjection. You know how you win a fight? You beat the other person into submission. What's he saying? I beat myself into submission. He doesn't mean that literally. He's not saying, I, boy, I go in there and I look in the mirror and I punch myself. In the, that's not his point. His point is I'm a disciplined person and I live with that discipline. And the reason for that is because if I don't and I preach to others, I disqualify myself from being a teacher. Do you think it's helpful if you get up and tell everybody else, don't be prideful? Pride is terrible. Pride is awful. And then as soon as you walk out into the four-year, people talk to you and you just puff yourself up full of pride. Is that helpful? You get the point, don't you? And, and none of us are perfect. We're all going to make mistakes. And I, I think that's another failure uh, sometimes in our thinking is we think, well, if I'm not perfect in this area, I can't address it. Well, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. Not that I've lied to you at this point, but I'm just going to be very upfront. If, if I was on that platform of unless I've got this mastered, I can't talk about it, I probably wouldn't preach about much. And you probably wouldn't either, would you? We're work in progress. But there needs to be a work in progress happening. If we're not even going to try, we're not even going to attempt to restrict ourselves from these things, but we're going to get up and teach others, we disqualify ourselves. How can I teach self-control if I exhibit no self-control? How can I preach patience if I'm impulsive and I'm hot-tempered with people? I have no credibility. You've got to have credibility. Ecclesiastes 10 and 1. Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. I love this verse. It's a little gross. But you know, it really, really drives the point home. Perfumer's ointment, which I think is called ointment of the apothecary in the King James, uh, it wasn't like perfume today. Most of our perfume is a, is a spray, a liquid that you spray out in a bottle. Theirs was more of like a cream or an ointment. And what would happen is they, they didn't have these nice little machines in these factories that would create threads on the top of a container where you could screw it real tight and keep everything out of it. So they, so they didn't have a way of really sealing it good and flies would make their way into it. Just like you know, flies can get anywhere. They'd get inside of this ointment and they would die. And 
they would just run the ointment. Now, have you ever had a fly trap on your back porch and at some point that fly trap gets full and you have to go take it and dump it? That's terrible, right? I mean, it's, it's one of the worst smells ever, dead, putrid flies. You say, why are we talking about flies? I'll tell you why. Here's his point. What does perfume do? Now, I'm allergic to perfume, so, but I, I appreciate its smell. It's, it's a pleasant smell, right? And we put it on so others smell us and they go, they smell nice. But here's what happens. When dead flies get in the perfume, people don't go, let's keep that perfume around because it used to smell good. You know what they do? That stinks. Throw that in the trash. And what's he relating that to? He said, you can be a person that's known and respected as a person of wisdom and honor, but do something foolish. You know what people remember? Not the wisdom and honor and the respect. They remember the stink. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to warn you. If you really want to teach and be effective, don't do things that stink. Don't do things that are foolish. And you may say, well, that's not fair. People shouldn't look back at our past and judge us. I know it's not fair. It's just reality. It's reality. So don't do things that would affect your credibility because once you lose your credibility, you lose your platform to be able to teach others. And that's a big deal. Romans chapter 2, 17 through 24, as we're expanding this idea, again, we're going to do a little bit of reading here. And, and I want to do two things with this. I want to also apply this to our subject, but also do a little exercise in hermeneutics, what we've been talking about, about interpreting God's Word, diving into context and things like that. So as Paul's writing this letter, he starts in the first chapter by talking about the lifestyle of the Gentiles. And by the end of that chapter, he has very successfully and very easily condemned them as being guilty before God. That's the whole point of what he's doing there, is to say, look, they're, they're living a life where they don't honor God, they're not thankful, they're involved in all these unrighteous acts. And he said, it's obvious to everyone who knows the righteous judgment of God that people who do these things deserve death. So that's the point. But he gets into chapter 2 and he says, and by the way, Jews, you're no better. You're no better. And one of the things that he really impresses upon the reason that they're not better is because they had all the knowledge of God's will and none of the application. See, they felt like they were superior to the Gentile because they had the knowledge. And obviously that was an advantage. He even talks about that. What advantage has the Jew? Well, every way, because unto them were committed the oracles of God. But here's where they didn't have an advantage. They weren't applying it. And so he goes on to say this, Indeed, you who are called a Jew and rest in the law, that is, you have your assurance in the law, and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent and being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Okay, let's just break all this down. What's he saying? He's saying, let me give you a really good picture of who you think you are. This is who you think you are. You think that you're this light to all the ignorant people that exist in the world because you know everything about God and you pride yourself in being a guide to the blind. You're a light to those in darkness, an instructor to the fool. And then a big heaping helping of humble pie when he says, you therefore, who, who therefore, good grief, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Ouch! <laughs> Do you not teach yourself? 
You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemy among the Gentiles because of you. Okay, this isn't just about being disqualified as a teacher at this point. It's much bigger than that. What was happening? The people who were teaching but weren't applying were causing the name of God to be blaspheme, blaspheme among the unbeliever. You don't think that happens today? You don't think that happens? When, you, when you're in this town and people know that you're a member of Northwest Church of Christ and you behave and act in ways that are inconsistent with Christianity, the name of God is blaspheme. That's the reality. When you stand up here and you teach that things are wrong and then you go and you do that very thing, the name of God is blasphemed. It's not just your name. It's God's name. It's his reputation that is spoken evil against. That's what the word blaspheme means there. He's spoken evil of. This is big. You've got to have credibility, not just among the brethren, but also out in the world. If you're studying with somebody and you're sitting down at their home and you're trying to counsel them with some addiction problem, whether that's alcohol or pornography or any other thing, and then they look at you and you go, well, you got a video game addiction. Guess what? You just lost your credibility. You're saying, well, here's how you get over your addiction. And meanwhile, we've got an addiction. I discipline my body and keep it under subjection. That's what Paul said. I discipline my body. I keep it under subjection. I don't want to dive into this, but fasting is a really good way to discipline your body. Because if you can teach your body to not go after something that it needs, you can deny your body of something that it just wants. It's a very effective tool. Paul was a man who fasted, and he talked about it often that he fasted. There's examples of him fasting in the book of Acts. It's a very important tool to help us to learn discipline, to be more effective in our teaching. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. I want to notice something here about Peter, and it's not to pick on Peter, but, but this is one of those situations where I think this is actually a bigger deal than we sometimes make it out to be. And, and I want to look at what was happening here. Because it, it, it sort of seems like this is gossip or that Paul just writes this letter and he like puts Peter in it and he's, he's bashing Peter, but that's not at all what's happening. He's using Peter as example to teach us something. And he says, when Peter had come to Antioch, I was stood him to the face because he was to be blamed. You know what that means, he was to be blamed? He was guilty. That's what it means. Peter was guilty. He said, for before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came... He withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? Now, I think it's probably an understatement to say that Peter had a tremendous amount of influence in the church and especially among the Jewish converts. So I want to see a progression of events that Paul's describing here. So number one, Peter withdraws from the Gentiles. That's the first thing he says. When he saw, uh, when the brethren from James came, he withdrew himself from the Gentiles. Now, this is not, they changed cafeteria tables. 
So let's, let's think about that. On the surface, that's what it looks like. Like, oh, he's sitting over with the Gentiles, and now the Jews walk in. He's like, oh, I'm going to go sit with these people over here. That's not the point. This isn't about him isolating the Gentiles eating dinner. What was it about? Well, the Gentiles did not have restrictory laws regarding the foods that they ate. And, and now Peter has been living there, working there, staying there, not living there, but staying there and working with them. And you know what he's been doing the whole time? With his understanding that what God has cleaned, not to call common or unclean, and that he's now allowed because the law has been done away with to eat with these Gentiles, he's been doing that. But then the Jews show up and he's like, hmm. What's he doing? Giving into pressure. He's giving into pressure. And these Jews that came, what does it say? It wasn't just Peter. It wasn't just Peter. It says, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. You don't think they were emboldened by Peter? Even Barnabas, he says. I, I just look at Barnabas and I go, this guy must have just had no faults. <laughs> he, he just, he's such a good guy. You just see Barnabas, he's, he's the son of encouragement. And, and, he, and you know, at the time when Paul says, I don't want Mark going with me, Barnabas is like, I'll take Mark with me. And then you see this here and he goes, even Barnabas was carried away. Why? Because that's the kind of influence that Peter had. So who does he call out? Peter. That's why I think that Peter's at the head of this, what's going on here. Because that's who he calls out. That's who is to be blamed. And he doesn't even take him privately aside and say, hey man, this is not good, you shouldn't be doing this. No, he says it before them all. You know why? Because there's a bunch of people involved in this. That could have greatly affected his credibility. But I believe Peter repented of this. But Paul understood the influence that Peter had. Now I want you to understand the influence that you as a public teacher have. He divided the church. He was walking in a way that was contrary to the gospel. We're to build up. We're not to tear down. And there's things that we could do if we're not careful that could tear this congregation apart. And so first off, be wary of the high horse. <laughs> be wary of the high horse. You say, what in the world is a high horse? Well, that's a high horse. <laughs> no, a, a high horse is when you're talking to a bunch of people in a very condescending way as though you are superior to them in intellect or knowledge. Be wary of that. Because I tell you, you'll rub people wrong enough times that it's going to be a... It doesn't matter what kind of presentation that you give, how well you organize your content, and how well studied you are. Once you get that reputation as, oh great, we got to watch this guy get up and flex his brain muscle, you know. People will get very disenchanted from that. They, they will not appreciate it. I, I'll tell you another thing that, that I think we need to watch out for, and that's the pet doctrine. This is a huge problem. What is a pet doctrine? Well, it's, it's really just a, a, an analogy for something. A pet doctrine is, is think of a, somebody leading a dog around on a leash everywhere they go, and they've got this thing, and it, you know, it's just always with them. You've seen these people, you know, and maybe you're one of those people. I'm not trying to be mean. But, but you carry this dog around all the time. It's just always with you. Well, that's how, that's how some people are with certain doctrines. They, it, it becomes their identity. Like, you see that person, you don't, 
You don't think, oh, there's that guy, and he's this kind of person. You go, oh, great, he's going to come talk to me about that again. It's, it's just like, it wears people out. You say, well, I, I still don't understand what a pet doctrine is. Well, let me give you an example of that. How about the flat earth theory? That's a pet doctrine for some people. And every time that they open up a conversation with somebody, they've got to talk about it. Look, I'm not trying to say, I'm not trying to give an argument as to whether the earth is flat or it's a sphere. What I'm saying is, just stop. <laughs> just stop. What about the day-age theory in the, in the book of Genesis? Why is it that some people always want to start an argument that is led with their pet doctrine? Well, I'll tell you why. Because we are very firm in our convictions. And I'm, I'm saying this because I've been that person before. I've been that person. And I didn't even realize I had a pet doctrine. But then I found out that every time I was having a conversation with somebody, it was always about one certain thing. You know why? Because I steered the conversation toward it every time because I wanted to talk about it. Because I want you to know that I have all this figured out. That's a pet doctrine. Beware of that. You know why? Because it can cause division in the body. And I want to go through uh, just shortly a synopsis of Romans 14. And I want us to all see that this is not only something we need to be wary of, it's also prohibited by God that we express these pet doctrines. Romans chapter 14. I'm going to read this from the ESV. And I'm doing that because there's a, a several phrases that I think are a little bit easier to understand, a little more clear. Romans 14, verses 1 through 4. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And so I'll, that's the reason I wanted to use this translation is because this is really what we're talking about is people who are divided over opinions. Now, these opinions were relating to some religious practice. And so we might call it a matter of conscience. And, and we've all got those, okay? You know, there, there are... 12 different ideas about how the communion ought to be done. There's probably 20 or 30. I don't know. There's a bunch. Well, okay. Is it okay to have those views? Well, you know, probably some of them. Right? That's, is it okay to fight over those views? Well, maybe if it's unscriptural. Is that what we're talking about? Scriptural? No, we're talking about something that is not plainly thus says the Lord. They may be in, I, don't, I know we don't like this word, but maybe more in a gray area matter, but we don't have them in a gray area matter. We take them out of the gray area matter and we put them in the black and white matter. We take something that is a liberty and we make it a law. Or we make a law a liberty. Both of those are very detrimental. That's what we're talking about. And so you've got people that, some people think it's a law, some people think it's a liberty. And that's really what we're discussing in Romans 14, is some things that are a matter of liberty, not a matter of law. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So there's a variation in their belief, right? Somebody thinks, well, I'm not allowed to eat that. And someone says, well, I can eat that. Okay, that's fine. Go eat that, you go eat that, and we'll just all be happy in Christ, right? Well, that wasn't what was happening. So what's the admonition? Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. You know what he didn't say? Those of you that are strong, you need to go set this person straight. And you need to tell them, you need to get on board and start eating meat. You know why? Because whether you eat meat or don't eat meat, God doesn't care. 
He doesn't care whether you eat meat. Eating meat is not a matter of law. It's a matter of liberty. And so we go, well, 1 Timothy chapter 4 says every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused, so stop refusing meat. Paul is describing a a liberty, not a commandment. God doesn't command us to eat meat. That's what I mean by a high horse. Yes, it's a liberty. Why are you trying to, to press your liberties on everybody? Those are not the biggest problems we have in the body of Christ, whether or not somebody's practicing a liberty. And so they were dividing over liberty. And here's what was happening. So you had one that was despising the other. That's not good. Over liberty? Because you have a disagreement on an opinion? He said, don't you despise the person who abstains. Who is he talking to? The strong He says to the strong, don't despise the weak. You know why the strong despise the weak? Because we think they're small-minded, right? And I'm saying we like I'm the strong. I'm just saying we think they're small-minded. That's how we look at it. You're just small-minded. So we despise that person. And then he says this to the weak. He said, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Now, this isn't about being a weak Christian and a strong Christian. In fact, he doesn't even use the word strong in this entire chapter. He doesn't bring that up till chapter 15. But here's, here's what I want us to understand from this. When he talks about the weak here, what is he saying? Someone who's not that competent, confident rather in their liberty. It's not about being a weak Christian. It's about not being confident in their liberty. Who's the weak here? The one who abstains. The one who says, I I can't do that. But you know what they have a tendency to do? The strong has a tendency to despise the person who is the weak. But the weak have a tendency to to judge the people who are exercising their liberty. And so they go, well, I don't believe it's right to eat meat. You shouldn't eat meat. Don't you know that meat's bad for you? And don't you know meat is an ethical problem? And don't you know that meat, this, 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 and that? And And so what do they do? They look at somebody not as being small-minded, but just not caring about God. You just don't care about, that's why you're eating meat. You don't care about God. You don't care about what's right. Who's he talking about? Jew and Gentile. You got two vastly culturally different groups of people coming together in one body, and they got to make this decision about what they're going to eat and what they're not going to eat, and they're fighting and dividing over it. And so what's he say? Don't despise one another, don't judge one another, but rather do what? Welcome one another. Welcome one another. Your brethren, don't fight over this junk. Let me ask you a question. How do you think pet doctrines get started? Usually with one person. I want to tell you something. Once you put something out there, you can't take it back. You, you, can, you can really wish you could. You, you can take it back and say, and I, di- I, I shouldn't have said that, I didn't mean that. But what you can't take it back from is people's brain. You can't take it back. So maybe you throw out an idea, and people go, ooh, I like that. And they absorb that idea, and then later you go, oh, that's not a good idea. But guess what? You threw it out there for a bunch of people. They may think it's a great idea. And all of a sudden, this pet doctrine thing spreads out, and all of a sudden, you've got Christians disliking one another, fighting with one another, creating divisions over things they think are doctrine when it's really just opinion. So again, avoid the pet doctrine. He says, you, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of the Verse 4, it is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? 
So who's he talking to? Weak and strong. I hope we don't read this chapter and think, well, Paul's just getting on to the weak. No, he's not. He's getting on to both sides of this. And he says, why do you despise and why do you pass judgment? As it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an, an account of himself to God. Why does he bring up bowing the knee to God? I'll tell you why. Because he's trying to say this. You are not king and you shouldn't expect anybody to bow to you. Because they're not your servant. God is the only one that deserves a knee to bow and for us to give account to him. You don't, I don't, you don't have to give an account to me about your liberties. Now, that, this, this, again, this is not about doctrine. It's not about holiness. It's not about morality. This is strictly about liberties. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. But what you eat, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. This is the reason he said this. And I, this is where we're trying to get to. I know we're, we're going through a lot of this chapter, but I wanted to relate this back to the idea of us teaching and what we decide to teach on and what we restrict ourselves from teaching on. It's okay to have a discussion about liberty. It's okay. It's okay to talk about it. If it's not okay, then Paul is violating that principle by writing about it. So it's okay to discuss it. What's not okay is to divide over it. And this is really not okay. He says, if your brother is grieved by your liberty, by your exercising of your liberty, you're not walking in love. Don't destroy your brother. Now what is this talking about? You may have the liberty to eat meat. And in fact, he says, I know that I had the liberty to eat meat. In fact, he says, Jesus told me that. He says that early in the chapter. Jesus told me it was okay to eat whatever I wanted. But he said, if I exercise that liberty in front of a weak brother who thinks that is wrong and he's grieved by it, I'm not walking in love. I'm not walking in love. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. You think it's good to eat meat? Well, I do too. I ate bacon this morning. That's my favorite food. It would grieve me to not eat bacon. But honestly, if we're in front of somebody and they have a conscience issue about eating bacon, I want the bacon, but I'm not eating the bacon. And that's the kind of heart we need to have for each other. Again, it's not about us. And when we're teaching, it's not about us. It's about building up the body, not about dividing the body, not about tearing the body apart or creating some matter of opinion that people can fight and bicker and argue about because he says the kingdom of God is not that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit and what these pet doctrines do is they do this number one they cause people to question their righteousness that's why I said don't judge them because when you start judging someone saying well you're not right with God because you do xyz and they look at that and they go well, I'm not right with God the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and that's what these pet doctrines do. They take away peace. And I'll tell you, they take away joy. And you know that too, because when you get around somebody that's got a pet doctrine, it is so hard, so hard to interact. Don't be that kind of person. You've got personal convictions? Well, I do too. And notice what he says, the faith that you have. What's he mean by the faith that you have? Well, this is one of those translation things where we look at the word faith and we go oh man we can't talk about our faith no that's not what he's saying the belief that you have in the realm of liberty that's what he's that's the context that belief that you hold have it between you and God 
have it between you and God. So what's he say? Don't, don't, it's okay to have that view about your liberty if it really is a liberty. But you keep that to yourself. You practice that quietly and don't destroy the work of God for the sake of liberty. Okay, we're going to end our session here with Romans 16, 17 and 18. He says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you've learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. We've had lots of situations in lots of congregations where somebody gets a hold of a pet doctrine and they start spreading that around like wildfire. And I'll tell you, people are patient. They'll be patient with you for a while. But there comes a certain point where this applies. Where this applies. And, and it's no longer just a, hey, we're trying to be patient and forbearing in love and allow you to, to do this. But hey, you're causing division. And, and this doctrine that you're preaching about what's right and what's wrong that's a matter of liberty, this is contrary to the doctrine. It's contrary to the doctrine. See, that's what was happening there with Peter. What did it say? When I saw that they were not walking straight forward, what? About the truth of the gospel. You're not living in accordance with the gospel. What's he say? Avoid them. Mark them and avoid them. What's that mean? It means take note of that person and then avoid that person. Why? Because he said they're, they're all in it for themselves. I, I'm just, look, I know I'm harping on this, but let's all be very careful. Every single thing that we believe needs to be weighed and filtered through Scripture. And if we find these things to be a matter of contention, a matter of liberty, but it's not a matter of law, it's not a matter of, of right and wrong or do and don't or commandments, we can have those views, but let's not cause division over those things. And certainly let's not get up publicly and use this platform that we have that's a very serious platform for building up the saints to push an agenda. Let's not do that. All right. I'm going to open the floor for questions again, one at a time. Uh, any questions? All right. Well, we're a little bit early, so let's break for lunch and... When we come back, uh, we're going to dive into some things that are very centered around uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, 23 through 26. So be thinking about that.